Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Well, good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my guest, I always like to start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback that you provide us on the show, as well as to encourage you to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at RainCanada.com, if you're inclined. I'd really appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends, your family, other people you know, and while you're at it, why not share it with some people you don't know? Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page, where you can rate us and share us and like us and maybe get to know us a little bit better. So thank you again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is definitely appreciated. Now, let's get on with this show. My guest today is an amazing lady that I had the opportunity to meet and spend time with while supporting her along with my good friends Alan Kahn and Richard Dolan as they facilitated a two-day workshop in Toronto called the Performance Program, which was hosted by Legacy Council of Canada. Carrie Granger is a world-class leadership development educator, consultant, and coach. She is a decorated former Air Force officer, and she's an expert in the subject of both applying and teaching the concepts of transformative leadership under the most challenging conditions. Let me share. She is known for empowering leaders to create tangible results in the areas they're committed to. She's worked in close coordination with numerous branches of the U.S. Armed Forces and government agencies to achieve breakthrough mission performance, from leading logistical operations for hurricane evacuation missions and strategic planning initiatives for defense-based realignment and closure activities, to solving airlift logistical challenges, to leading U.S. troops under enemy fire during combat duty in Iraq. She's managed operations of over 1,200 employees. She was responsible for an aircraft fleet valued at over $1.2 billion dollars and managed an annual flying hour budget of over $20 million. And that is only a fraction of what Carrie Granger has accomplished. Today, Carrie is an in-demand coach, teacher, consultant, speaker on her approach to transformative leadership development. She joins me today on the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Carrie Granger, welcome to the show. I'm... Uh, Really, really pleased that we were able to find some time to uh, connect, and thanks for joining me. You're welcome, Patrick. I'm so happy to be here. 
I'm excited about you because I've I've had the opportunity to work with you a little bit and listen and attend a performance program that we held with Legacy Council of Canada, Alan Kahn, you, Richard Dolan in Toronto. And um, I got really to spend a couple of days getting to know you there, watching you and observing how you facilitate and participating along the way. So that was awesome. And tell me about what are you doing these days? Now, the intro kind of gives you, gives listeners a, some idea what you do and who you are, because you've had a lot of things happening recently. So tell me a little bit about what are you doing these days? What do you got going on? Yeah, uh, I'm growing my business, Patrick. Um, at the end of last year, I, I said, you know, I want to grow. And at that point, I was uh, myself and a part-time assistant. And within eight months, we had 13 people on our team. And, you know, our revenues kept up. And I thought, oh, my goodness. I mean, I said I wanted to grow, but, but this is fast. So what am I doing these days is I'm, I'm leading that growth. I'm staying, I'm keeping pace with the growth. I'm, I'm finding out what is it that we're doing that's working so well. And how do we articulate this value that we have? And, and how do we present that uh, to those who we should be working with? So I'm, I'm keeping up with growth is what I'm doing at the moment. Okay. So what is, uh, what is Granger Inc or, you know, first off, Granger what, Network. <laughs> Granger Network. What do you do? What is, what is the, uh, what is the gift of, uh, Carrie Granger and her team? What do you focus on? What is the support? We talk a lot about your leadership, your ability to facilitate, uh, support leaders, but give me a little bit of more depth into what it is that you and your team do. Yeah, we primarily work with leaders. You know, we'll work with executives, senior leaders, but you know, leaders. So we support leaders and and you know, we we support leaders in being the real deal. So what's the real deal? Uh for us and for those leaders, it's ensuring that all stakeholders are thriving while profits are rising. Right. So it's not one dimensional. We're working with leaders in a way that they're achieving better results. They're bringing performance. They're bringing accountability. They're bringing trust and they're just being better leaders. You know, a lot of our work will come in and, and, uh, and work with cultures, you know, culture, good cultures, great cultures. sorry, not good, great cultures outperform the S&P 500 by a factor of three. No kidding. Wow. So culture, you know, for us, culture is not the soft stuff. It's like the hard necessity. And we'll work with leaders and being the real deal and creating a culture that produces that kind of result. Well, let's dig into that right there. Let's just talk about culture. And because I can't hear culture without thinking about environment. And, you know, because really in behind culture is the environment that supports a great culture. So when you're going in, because are you dealing with large corporations only, small corporations? What is there or is there an entry point for you? Yeah, our entry points vary. um, And and we do work. We work with single leaders and with smaller organizations. And we'll work with uh, entire leadership teams of large organizations You know, recently, one of the things that we've fallen into an expertise of, and I I mean fallen into because we tested something out and then it worked and we 
keep getting asked to do it. And all of a sudden we look around and go, oh my goodness, we have an expertise here is post M&A culture. So post M&A, you know, what has us come in is there's cultural tension, you know, and you got two cultures that have come together. They're clashing. Uh, one's not right and the other wrong, although often they'll be lopsided. One will be bigger than the other. And, you know, they're just dealing with this massive change in which they were brought together. And now they somehow have to work together and produce a result. But there's a lot of things that didn't get worked out from a human element. You know, we learned to uh, we learned to manage change, circumstantial change, but not many of us learn how to uh, manage that psychological transition that happens with big changes, and those have big impacts on culture. So M&A, for clarity, is mergers and acquisitions. So you're going in after the fact. So post-merger acquisition, you're going in, there's... Uh, possibly, uh, you know, the culture because of whoever is now taking over and leading the way has a different thought process, a, you know, different philosophy, and you're going in and accommodating that. So you're, you're in supporting that change. Yeah. And you know, the, the people who have endured that change. So, you know, it's the human side and, you know, just interestingly enough, I found that it, it doesn't take as much as we think it does, you know, we'll, we'll hear all the problems, the problems with the policies, the problems with the leaders, the problems with the, um, legacy companies, the problems with the environment, you know, all sorts of problems. But when it comes down to it, you know, the people want to be heard. They want to be able to honor, you know, where they've come from and, and they want to have some say in creating where they're going. And, um, and, you know, it's not like us in our individual lives. Reminds me of the era work I do, which you and I, you know, may or may not speak about. But it's, they want an opportunity to create an ending and create a new beginning. And that, you know, underneath it all, that's really the kind of work that supports people. So, you know, when we come in, there's fear, there's anger, there's confusion, there's frustration, there's all of that. And our work is to support transitioning into an aligned culture with an aligned future and, uh, and clarity of direction. When you go into a business, and this is always, a, for me, an interesting conversation because I'm very clear from my perspective of being a business owner for almost 35 years now and having teams of people and have making lots of changes in the businesses that I've been involved in mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. you know, I'm always looking at the business and going, whatever's going on is just a reflection of who I'm being or what I'm doing or not doing. It's a ref- but that is also a reflection of me. And, you know, I always, you know, I use the term, if, if I'm the pointy end of the, the, the arrow, everything flows behind me and I've got to be really clear on my path and how to get there. Now, that's my, my, my view of the world. I work on me first and that is then goes out. So do you, when you go into a business, are you working with the leader first to assess where they're at personally, where they're at professionally, where they at, where they're at in their belief systems and their own personal professional development? Is that kind of where you start your process with this, Carrie? Yeah. And, and again, we're just speaking about our cultural alignment work here, right. but you know, overarchingly, we work with senior leaders in, in a number of areas. And, um, and it always starts with them, always. 
you know, I made the mistake in the past of going into an organization, doing some cultural alignment work with the leader seen at first at the same time as everyone else. And, uh, and you know, it was a lot more difficult in the implementation than, you know, what we learned, which is it, it is a reflection. And, and sometimes, you know, maybe you as a leader, you know where you're going, you're feeling good, you're authentic, you, but you also just don't have the skills Right. You know, to bring cultures together. But, you know, if the leaders off, you know, if they're not if they're not being authentic with, you know, their own struggles, their own challenges where they need help, if they're, you know, having to manage a pretense of knowing what to do and, (laughs) uh, you know, that that's pretty difficult then to partner with them uh, in making the impact in their organization. So are you actually assessing the leader and then saying, okay? Here's where this guy or gal is at, this lady's at. And as a leader, they're being authentic. They have great intentions. And maybe they even have some really strong business savvy, hence the position that they're in. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're competent in certain aspects of creating culture. And so do you are you then assessing their competence levels as well? The reason I'm asking the question, because there's, you know, on on these podcasts, we have lots of entrepreneurs, lots of small business owners who are looking at what they're trying to create, what they're trying to drive. And it doesn't really change in any size of the business per se, because of course the leader of that business may be more hands-on in, you know, you know, let's say a four or five or six person business, but ultimately it doesn't change too much when, even when you get into large organizations, uh, from my point of view, other than they're not directly, let's say in the trenches at, you know, at the front line, so to speak. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, in my practice, I don't use an assessment tool, you know, that, that puts you in some box that says you're this way and not that way. And and that's fine. I love those things. My clients like them and, and, and whatnot, but I do an assessment. Yeah. You know, I'm listening for certain capacities and where do, where do these leaders need support? We work, we also work a lot with leaders one-on-one, you know, in, in which we're not necessarily working with their whole organization or with leadership teams, but, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a lot in the domain of leadership and management competence. In fact, you know, I really divide it into three categories and I, you know, to really be a leader today, you do need to be able to manage what's already existing. You have to manage the, the, um, bread and butter of your business, you know, and, and actually as the CEO myself, I came in late to the management of the bread and butter. I came in, uh, early on, on the ladder, which is, you know, some real visionary leadership kinds of things. So I found that for myself, I really had to develop myself in simply managing business. You know, you have to be able to do that or have somebody who can do that. Then there's this other domain of adaptation and you have to be able to adapt, you know, to changing conditions in the marketplace, to changing um, political conditions, changing environmental conditions, depending on your industry, uh, social conditions. Um, You know, there's, there's a lot of changing conditions that you've got to be able to adapt to. I work a lot in healthcare and, you know, regulatory policy, uh, political changes, you know, it's a big deal, market changes. Um, and, and so you've got to manage, you've got to adapt, and then you've got to transform. And by transform, I mean to alter the very, uh, the very business itself to alter the, the way in which you operate. 
And that's not needed all the time, but you do need to be able to uh, really elevate your business. You do need to be able to, um, uh, to alter the way you function, the way others function, and, and to inspire transformations. Um, when, when in, for example, these post-MA environments, transfer, transformative leadership is needed. You know, you've got to take two cultures and, and create a third, you know? So uh, when I develop people, I'm listening for their management skills, their adaptation skills, and their transformative leadership skills. Do you have an overarching philosophy around leadership that you build on? Like, is there something that, you know, that is a, is a grounding factor? Like there's this benchmark or this baseline that gives you a, a place to start always, something that you're always grounded to. We got to, we start here and it's more of a philosophy or even a definition for you around what you're working with when you're working with leaders. Yeah. Leadership for me is not a set of characteristics traits. It's not even a specific skill set. In fact, when I work with leaders, my philosophy is I want them to have the greatest range of action possible. I want them to have any action available to it, to them in the moment to be able to effectively address what they're dealing with, whether it be a challenge or opportunity. And, you know, what's behind that is the definition of leadership that I uh, that I currently use, which is that leadership is the realization, the making real, the achievement. Leadership's the achievement of a future. And there's two caveats to that. So leadership being the realization of a future that number one, wasn't going to happen on its own. So if it was going to happen, you do need to be an effective manager, but you certainly don't need leadership. So the realization of a future that wasn't going to happen on its own, which future, and here's the kicker, fulfills on the fundamental cares of the relevant parties. So tell me more about that. Tell me more about what you mean by that. Yeah. So... You think about, okay, who are the stakeholders? And stakeholders is another term you really could use, those who are relevant to your leadership. You look at the stakeholders, and they each have different concerns, different commitments, different positions, different solutions. I'm not so interested in the kind of future that, you know, I've got to adhere to everybody's ideas and positions and solutions. I'm more interested in the kind of future that addresses what's fundamentally important to the relevant stakeholders. I said fundamental cares because underneath it all, what's a care is what you ultimately care about. And if you can drill down to what the relevant stakeholders ultimately care about, you can actually begin to see a future in which all cares are addressed. And that's really that's the real deal when I talk about leadership, you know, that, that all stakeholders concerns are addressed. You know, one of the things that I've been watching trending just um, globally is this more for more sake, more profit, more material, more, more higher, you know, more fame, more position, more, more, more. And for the sake of what? Well, the sake of more, and I think it's having real damage to our environments, to our communities, to our uh, to the future generations. 
things are becoming more lopsided. And so one of the reasons, you know, one of the uh, raison debt, even for the work that I do is to show that all stakeholder interests can be effectively addressed, uh, which includes shareholders, by the way, not just shareholders, but does include shareholders. So profits can rise, which is a shareholder care, while all stakeholders thrive. So when I come back to the definition of leadership, where I say a future in which the fundamental cares of all the relevant parties are addressed, that's what I mean. I mean that we actually have to be innovative. We have to be creative. And for it to be the real deal, we've got to be able to successfully address, doesn't mean 100%, but take into consideration when we make decisions and take actions, the fundamental cares, concerns, commitments of the the, um, uh, stakeholders, relevant parties. When you... You know, when I when you're describing that, what I'm hearing in that is well, some qualities of leaders. You know, I'm going to use compassion and empathy, vision, uh, being able to assess an environment, look at the culture, and also know what you want the culture to be, that supports stakeholders in having success and and having a great environment and culture. But aside from those, you know, that compassion, that empathy, vision, what are some of the qualities that you're looking for? in a leader, and then are you actually supporting leaders, I'm assuming this, so I don't want to, that you're supporting leaders in in refining or growing those qualities or considering where they may be, you know, strong in one or weak in another. Do you have a kind of a handful of qualities that you're always looking for in a leader? No, I don't. I'll tell you some of the foundational things, but philosophically, yeah, I want them to have that. But, you know, I also want the leaders I developed to be able to be uh, angry. You know, I worked with a senior VP uh, in healthcare who couldn't be angry. Mm. You know, she couldn't, she couldn't display any negative emotion. Well, she had a really tough time actually holding her reports feet to the fire when she needed to hold them to the fire. And you don't have to be, you don't have to you know, you can do that in a very compassionate and positive mood. But the fact that she had a limited range where in fact, she only saw it as, Oh, I got to be a servant leader. And I got to be compassionate and visionary, like all these positive things. Well, who has those, by the way, who of us actually is born or has those? I mean, it's like, we're all handicapped starting out of the gate. <laughs> That's true. You know? So rather I work with leaders to expand their range, you know? So So I want you to have the whole range available for you. Now, there are fundamental things. And and a lot of that work is is uncovering our blind spots, uncovering the things that, you know, who we really think we are, uh, habit patterns, just to give you a greater range. But at the same time, there are some capacities that I do feel all leaders need. And I feel that all leaders need to have the capacity to intervene in performance, elevate performance. I feel like they need the capacity to uh, uh, engender and bring about accountability. You know, accountability is huge. You don't have accountability. I mean, accountability is the thing that ensures our success. You know, it's not the thing that happens after the fact when things go wrong. But if you have accountability like a foundation, you can accomplish almost anything. And then they have to be able to, in a real way, create a culture of trust. 
you know, trust makes things possible. You know, you, if you don't have trust, a, a future is closed off. If you and I don't have trust together, you know, there's no future action we can take together. So true. And I'm going to dig into trust a little bit. I want to go, cause that, mm-hmm. I know that's, that's, that's a good one for you. I, I really okay. like that topic. I learned a lot about trust uh, and how to hold trust in the context for it. But I want to go back a little bit, you know, about anger, about that assertiveness that a leader has to have. And, and in the, in the, in the world of sports, the coach has got to know when to go into the dressing room and kick the garbage can across the room and fire everybody up and really bring everybody back to what the hell's going on here. Now, having said that, that doesn't necessarily be, you know, have to be, you know, to your point, it doesn't have to be after things have gone off the rails. As a matter of fact, it may be to avoid things going off the rails. In other words, that aggressive assertiveness, that statement, that stand that a leader needs to take ideally is going to be before shit hits the fan, before things go off the rails. And so that's an interesting point that you make because I, I've often, and I've probably been guilty of it, maybe, maybe not, but I, of being maybe too nice a guy in the wrong, you know, at the wrong time. This is not the time to, you know, nurture somebody. It's actually the time to kick somebody in the ass and, and maybe get their head out of their butt and go. So that's an interesting component of leadership that I don't know that all people own. They, they really want to try and be the nice person. Yeah. And the charismatic person. And, and, and that's yeah. why, you know, I just don't use, I just don't use that approach, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I, I just, I was just thinking while you were talking, you know, both back to this senior VP who, I mean, she was so happy when she break, broke through, just like, I got angry. I got angry. You know, it was almost, <laughs> it was almost horrible. Right. But I mean, she's been a force to be reckoned with and her anger. Let me tell you, her anger is like, <laughs> you know, Patrick, you, you must do what you said you were going to do. That's her anger. Yeah, okay. Yeah, my yeah. anger looks way more extreme. But I was just thinking, you know, I, right. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, this person that works with me and, you know, I've been great. You know, we have this different model of accountability and, you know, which I'd love to share if we have time. I don't know if we will. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, okay. You're counting for your word and, and, you know, she messed up. She's kind of new. Okay. You know, what happened? Good. What are you going to put in place to prevent that from happening again? Good. And things are going well. And I thought, you know, she, in fact, you know what it was, it was preparing for this podcast. I think it's probably better. You know, I didn't get my preparation time because it's just authentic conversation, but you know, I did have time set aside, right? Like I was going to know what this is about. And I was going to do some preparation. I went in there and nothing's in it. Just says prep. <laughs> now, I mean, I'm going through my day so fast. I'm like, what the heck is prep about? Right. Yeah. I didn't have any wiggle room for that to happen again. And I thought, okay, this, this thing has happened a couple times now. And, uh, and so I, I thought, what, what's going to make the difference? And so here's where I'm looking, Patrick, I'm looking at what is the outcome that I want to create? Not from a triggered place. You know, when we're triggered and we're mad, Yeah. that's, that's not the kind of anger I'm talking about. I'm not talking about getting triggered and you have to be angry to me. When you have to be angry, you don't have a range of action. You only have one called anger. I'm talking about the cool, calculated, in light of the outcome I want to produce, in light of the person that's in front of me, what's going to produce that outcome? And in that moment, I saw actually showing, you know, a little bit of frustration and like my authentic frustration. I was frustrated, 
but to show that, to display that, and, you know, to allow this person to feel the impact, you know, of the action. And, and I did, you know, I showed some authentic frustration. It was calculated. It was, it was not manipulative. It was authentic for me, but I allowed it to come through and, you know, it did, it made a significant enough impact that the response was one of a much deeper responsibility and attentiveness to, to the detail that I needed to be attended to. And that's partially part of training for a team and part of training mm-hmm. for that particular member of the team. And, and, and so, yeah, sometimes that frustration shows up, as you say, not necessarily triggered, but thought out and intentional sometimes that assertiveness. I want to go to trust because to me, this leads into trust. I mean, understanding the leader and what they are expecting and how they're going to communicate and knowing in advance what that can look like. Sometimes you have to also, you know, people have to, you know, we look at, let's, let's, I'm going to hold it. Let, rather than me get into it, I want you, because you got such a great perspective and definition of trust and how you explain trust. Why don't you talk about trust? Yeah. And, and, you know, just to give credit to where credit's due, uh, you know, I learned a lot about trust from one of my teachers, Dr. Fernando Flores. I uh, pull a bit from Julio Olala, uh, Charles Feltman, you know, there's a number of people, the Reina and Reina, you know, that I've really created a mosaic. And, and that's really my art anyway, it's a mosaic artist. You know, I'm a mosaic artist. Sure. But one of the most, you know, the biggest breakthrough books that I read on trust is Robert Solomon and Fernando Flores' book on building trust. I think they say in relationships, politics, and business, something like that. Now, it's it's not that practical, but you see, that's that's what you have me for. I read these things and I make it very practical. So there's been a, you know, one of the fundamental things I got about trust from them is, you know, trust is not an atmosphere social glue, medium, or any of that other vague, hard to put your hands on stuff. Trust is actually an action. It's what we do through conversation. So trust is built, sustained, and rebuilt when violated through conversation. You know, so, I mean, there's, we have a whole course on trust and, you know, maybe we can make that available in the show notes or something like that. But, you know, there's a lot of distinctions around trust. And, you know, a few of the things that, that I like to start with trust is, you know, many people think you either have trust or you don't have trust. And that's really a simple view of trust. Uh, It's a very naive view, even that when trust is broken, it's gone too bad. And in fact, when trust is broken, you know, that, that shakes us to the core, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest, you know, uh, things that I've had to not just overcome, but in the overcoming study is how do you rebuild trust when trust is broken? You know, how do you overcome those betrayals? And, and so here's what I learned about trust. You know, that true trust is, is authentic, authentic trust. And if I'm extending trust to you, Patrick, if I'm extending authentic trust, not the simple trust that's there until it's broken, but I mean real authentic trust, then I know in the extension that there's a possibility of betrayal. 
I know that I'm not going to be blind to that. I know there's a possibility of betrayal. Why? Because you're a human and I'm a human. And you know what humans do? They betray each other. <laughs> Intentionally, more oftentimes unintentionally, right. but it happens both, right? Majorly and minorly. And so uh, if I know that in my extension of trust, it's a choice. I have a choice to choose, to trust. And I'm extending authentic trust to you. I also have the confidence in myself that I can overcome any violation. You know, so I'm going in with my eyes wide open, right? So where does trust start? Trust starts not by earning trust. You know, how many of us say trust has to be earned and we're waiting where we're, I kind of find one or the other people, you're either waiting for others to prove their trust and earn your trust, or you extend trust with any thought whatsoever. But rather than that, trust can be cool. It can be calculated. It can be thoughtful. And I can extend authentic trust to you I can open that window of trust. So trust begins with extending trust. And then trust is maintained and sustained through conversations for trust. Now, what can I go into the next? Con- can I tell you what those conversations are? Yeah, because, yeah, no, you can tell me what they are. Cause I also, yeah. I, and then I, I'm, I'm, I think you're going to probably cover what notes I just wrote down, but go ahead, please. Okay. Share, <laughs> share. <laughs> so that is, so it, it begins by extending a window of trust. Now I got, you know, Julio Lala, he speaks about a window of trust, right? And how do you, so maybe we don't give you the whole thing all at once, right? You know, that's a little naive, right? Or maybe you've betrayed me in the past, but can I extend just a little window? Maybe, maybe the window is just to have a conversation and see how that goes. And maybe the window slowly opens over time. Yeah. But then I said it is sustained and maintained through conversation. What are the conversations? Yeah. So I found a series of four conversations that make the biggest difference. And then I'm going to tell you what, what I find to be the core strategy for building trust. Okay. Please. So those four conversations are conversations for truth. So conversations for truth, meaning that you and I can build our trust if we can actually speak our truth authentically. Now, I have to have an assessment of you that, number one, you're speaking your truth. So what you're saying to me publicly matches what's going on for you privately. You know, so that's kind of domain of sincerity and just factual, you know, truth, lie, right? But also just what's authentic for you. You know, when you get a sense, people are kind of giving you the pretense or not the real stuff. Yeah. True. But I also need an assessment of you that you're a safe place for me to speak my truth. That if I speak my truth, you're not going to run around and tell other everybody, or it's not going to come back to bite me later, you know, but so conversations for truth, that's one conversation. The other one is conversations for accountability. Now, you know, accountability for me is really a whole thing a model, a whole world of accountability, which we're not going to get into right now. But the short of it is, you know, do you, are you accountable for your word? You know, are you reliable for your word? If you tell me you're going to do something, are you going to do it? Are you going to, and if you're not, are you going to let me know you're not as soon as you know, and deal with the impact of not doing it? You know, are you really, are you going to hold your word as highly as I'm holding your word? You know, can I trust your word? Accountability. And the other piece of accountability is, you know, when you when you say, are you really being accountable for 
or, you know, your promises. So, you know, if you're going to bring the cake to my birthday party and you come to my birthday party and say, yeah, I'm sorry, you know, the cake, they were closed and I ran into traffic. Well, you know, that's not really being accountable for your word. You know, what I'd expect is, you know, can I count on you to then go buy cupcakes or cookies or something, right? But do you, can you really be accountable for, you know, what you say and the outcome of what you say? So truth, accountability, competence, right? So do I assess that you're competent in this domain? So, you know, you don't have to be competent in everything, but you know, if you were going to advise me on real estate investments, you know, I'd want to assess you as competent in that. You wouldn't have to be competent in catering, uh, you know, my, um, fundraising event. Right. But you do, I do need to have that assessment. So can I have, and then can we have conversations around that? Right. So could we actually talk about your competence specific to this and my competence specific to this? Can we have conversations for truth, accountability, competence? So back to accountability. Can you and I even talk about that? (laughs) You know, you didn't follow, you didn't follow through. Can I come to you and say, Patrick, you didn't follow through. What's up? Right. Yes. And then the last one, uh, truth, accountability, competence, and care. Now that goes back to an earlier conversation you and I had about cares. When you make decisions and you take actions, do you have what's most important to me in mind? You know, it doesn't mean you have to always do what I want you to do, but do you at least, do I think that you have what's important to me in mind? You consider it. Can I trust that you have my cares in mind? You know what? Sometimes when I work with leaders, senior leaders, they don't really trust their direct reports to make good decisions. And when we get down to it, it's actually a function of care that the senior leader does not trust that the direct report has the fundamental cares of the company in mind when making decisions and taking actions. You know, so do we have conversations about what's most important to us? Do I, in our conversations, do I acknowledge your agendas and your fundamental cares and look to try to include them as I move forward? And those are the four conversations. In all of that, it comes back to really having great conversation. You know, over the years, what Stephanie and I and with our teams and what Stephanie really got to many years ago was the understanding around trust as well. And I, you see it within the accountabilities. I mean, it, it lives in all four quadrants because like, I took what you talked about. I put it into four quadrants. And in our language and in our world, it's about are we fully stated or have we or are actually are we working with unstated expectations and or assumptions? Lots of people's trust is broken, but they have an unstated expectation or they have an assumption that they're making that people share common values, that they understand what accountability is. So we can have this thing called accountability, but if we're not aligned on what accountability really represents. So, you know, we use, you use the example if, you know, if you say, well, somebody's going to bring a cake to, you know, your party and they're going to be there on time and they show up and they're late. Did they actually have an understanding that as much as it's about the cake, it's about the experience. So if you can't get a cake, stop for cookies, you know, throw some milk in there and some whipped cream and get creative. And, and there's always the understanding and of what our assumptions we're making around values, uh, the expectations we have of people that are not stated. And we actually set ourselves up and the other person to break down trust 
because they are operating on top of their values and what their expectations, what their definition of. And it always goes back to what you said, Carrie, is conversation. And, you know, we, we talk about betrayal. Gosh, you know, I've seen so many times over the years that what was, I guess, assessed as betrayal was so far from betrayal, but there was an expectation and an assumption that wasn't stated. And when the person shows up, he's going, okay, well, I did what I thought you wanted. You know, you didn't ever say to me this, this, or this. So that's, it's such a powerful conversation in the world of trust. As you say, it's so deep. You have whole workshops on trust alone. Right. <laughs> that was just a couple of things that always show up for us in a breakdown yeah. of trust. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, part part of uh, accountability for me is creating cl- these clear agreements. Yes. You know, and um, and if you don't have an alignment on what you said, expectations or alignment on what I might say constitutes success, mm-hmm. it is just asking for you know a breakdown of trust, blame, you know. So that's, that's one of the most important things when we create clear agreements, which is let's align on what's the criteria for success. You know, and the the other thing is the other thing you kind of reminded me of and is, uh, delegation. So, you know, this comes up a lot in delegation, right? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And so here's the other thing that we often do is we delegate the action, go take this action. And then we get disappointed in the result, right? Totally. So I can't tell you how many times I've experienced this or the people I work with experience this, right? And then there, I got, I got this insight the other day that we're delegating the wrong thing. You know, we're, we're delegating tasks and actions. And, that, and that's really the wrong thing. We need to delegate our, quote, vision, the way we see. We need to delegate, like, Here's what we fundamentally care about. Here's the opportunity we see. Here's the criteria for success that I see. Here's the possible breakdowns I see. So when you start to delegate the way you see, not just the action, you'll find that your success rate goes up. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to, okay, so I'm going to take, because I think this, I'm going to box this segment because there's just so much there and we could, talk a, a lot about it and I want to, but, you know, I, I want to give, I want to talk about you, Carrie, because, oh. you know, <laughs> I want to talk about how you get to this. I, I mean, you have a military background and, and you did a lot in the military. And as I sit here today, you know, uh, the audience that's listening to this needs to know that I'm sitting, looking at Carrie and, and we're doing this via, you know, technology zoom. And she's got this really wonderful really funky white headset on and you know like you got it all going on there and you know you're you just exude energy and you're young and you're accomplished and let's talk about how you got here so tell me a little bit about first let's let's talk about your military background because i think this is really in the in in the conversation around leadership and in the conversation of taking action and working with people i mean that really is the training that and the background that I think can epitomize what you're, the work you're doing that gives you the qualification and the, I mean, that's like, that's a real condensed 
hardcore way to learn is in the military. That's my story around the military and the training that they provide. But I'd like you to share a little bit of what your background in the military was, how it got to you to where you are today. How did you get into the military? When did you go in? Uh, well, I might, it might be somewhat humorous, uh, to find out how I got in. Uh, so I wanted to play division one soccer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cause I, okay. That's really humorous wanna... because when I hear military, I don't think soccer in any way, shape or form. <laughs> I know. I'll connect the dot for you. So you know, I wanted to play division one soccer and I liked the, and, 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 and I was pretty good. Okay. I was pretty good. My, you know, I, I grew up in the U S and in the U S we have state championships and, you know, my team was uh, four time state championships and you go to high school for four years. So I'm, I was on a good team and that was pretty good, but I wasn't great. You know, I started half the time and, and I really could not play division one soccer, which is a big deal in, in many of the, you know, us universities that were really known for division one soccer. However, the U S air force Academy is a division one school. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and the crazy thing is, you know, that, that I was a, I was a student athlete. So, you know, I, I got into the U S air force Academy and you know what they paid for. Well, I, they didn't pay, they paid for the school, but the U S taxpayers paid for the school. Right. So wait a second, I can go on four-year scholarship, play division one soccer. You know, this was before any of the conflicts in the world. You know, this is great. I just, you know, I owe five years after that. Wonderful. Right. So that's kind of how I got into the U.S. Air Force Academy. Then now I stayed for a much more moral inspirational reason, which was, you know, after the first year I was there, I was, you know, I was just so in awe of my peers you know, I thought, oh my God, this, the people I'm surrounded with are amazing, like their ethics and integrity and ambition. And, you know, these are good people, right? And we're jumping out at airplanes and we're, I mean, we're doing, we're doing, you know, survival training where they throw us in the woods with no food and we gotta, well, I, you know, I, we gotta do things to get our food, right? And, and, um, and, uh, and then I'd go home. And my buddies who had gone to these great colleges, you know, they talk about all the, you know, beer pong and these other things that they were involved in. And, you know, I felt in some ways I was missing out, but I thought, boy, I really, I really like the crowd I've gotten into here. And, and I started to really develop a sense of duty and honor and, and character in that way. Um, and, and I stayed for that. Now my, the year, my graduation year, my senior year, my graduation year, 9-11 happened in New York city. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden things got really real and it was too late to back out. I'd already signed the line. And, and that's really when it hit me. That's really when it hit me that, wow, you know, I'm, I'm, in the military, I'm going to be fighting for my nation. And, you know, I had to get real about my own beliefs and, you know, pretty soon within a, a few years of graduating, I was in Iraq and, um, 
you know, and, and I had always been into leadership. I, you know, even as a cadet at the Air Force Academy, I studied leadership. I was one of the first people to get a graduate degree in leadership. In fact, my institution, the, I went to University of New Mexico afterwards, and uh, they, they didn't have a leadership degree, but I made one up and they accredited it and, and I got it. But there I was, you know, in, in Iraq, I deployed to Kuwait, but forward deployed to Iraq. And, you know, it was the first time under enemy fire. Um, I've told this story before. It was the first time that I actually heard, you know, mortar attacks and then the sirens and like really loud booms where people had been there. And they said, Ooh, that was really close. Right. And you go, wait a second, it was close. Or like, it's probably in, you know, a couple of hundred yards or so. And you go, Oh, you know, and that's the moment where it just dropped. You, know, you can feel it all, you know, your chest, your gut, like it's just all the way down. And I thought, Oh my God, this is, this is my life here. Like this, I actually could be here. This, you know, this is my life. Like it, it just never had occurred for me going to the U S air force academy, play soccer, that I'd be here. And here I was in Iraq. And, um, you know, and I had a master at that point, I had gone to the military institution. I had a master's degree in leadership. And I have to tell you that, that all the concepts, you know, what we had talked about earlier in the podcast, that leaders should be visionary and they should be decisive and they should be, you know, this thing and that thing and not the other thing. And all that studying, all the models, you know, situational leadership theory and this contingency model and even transformational leadership model. And you got to be this way. And none of that made a difference in the moment, Patrick, none of it. I was scared for my life and I was hunkered down and my helmet went my flak vest. And, and yet, you know, as soon as the sirens cleared, I had to lead a team to go fix an aircraft that had, you know, needed to be fixed so it could continue on its mission. Right. And, um, and, and so I had to dig deep inside of me and, and I had to, bring about not knowledge, but a way of being, you know, I had to be courageous. I had to act in the presence of fear in light of a bigger commitment. And in that moment, in light of a bigger commitment was, you know, to support the Marines and the army Rangers down line who were waiting on supplies and we're waiting on an aircraft to take them out of the combat zone. And, you know, these are brothers and sisters and, you know, husbands and sons and, you know, and I saw their faces and, and I thought, Oh my God, this isn't hypothetical, you know? And so I had to, I had to get committed to something bigger than myself and start to act. And, um, and later in, in, in thinking about that situation, I realized that it's not the knowledge that one knows about leadership, but it's rather one's way of being and one's orientation. Like my orientation shift the moment I started to think about the guys who are waiting on us, you know, it got me up off the floor and it got me in action because I had a future and I had something bigger than myself that had me take that action. So that, that began, you know, that military experience. And, you know, I, I went on to do some fairly successful things and, um, you know, they asked me to come back to the Air Force Academy actually and, and teach leadership. 
And, but, you know, and when I got back to Air Force Academy and teach leadership, I reflected a lot on my deployed experience. And I thought, you know, it was never the knowledge of the, the models. It was in the way that I would see myself in the way that I would see, you know, who I was serving. It just had me create a whole different approach. You know, I think it was Mike Tyson that some version of uh, the quote that said, you know, it, you know, plans are great until you get punched in the face. You know, it's, it's like, you know, you're there, you've got the education, you've got whatever training you got, and then you get deployed and things are blowing up. And it's like, yeah. what do you do with that? And, you know, the realization for you in that, at that time or in that moment that there's people's lives at stake and that the decisions you're making, the actions you're taking could affect the outcome of living and dying. I can't imagine the weight that that you carried, but on the same, uh, at, the, on, at the same, by the same token, I think about also the training that you did have, which you said, holy shit, this is, is this really going to matter to me? But there's, there's got to be a level of confidence that's gained at least getting to that point and then being able to take some of that training and applying it. You know, what I heard in some of the conversation early on in this in this little segment that you shared with us, and thank you for sharing that. I, you know, I'm I'm observing you, so I, I also get to see your body language and your reflectiveness in that. And when you talk about, you know, the the environment that you were in, the military, I hear a lot of of there's gotta be a level of discipline that you're just wired for. It's genetically hardwired for an environment that is clear, is concise, is precise. And I'm, I'm kind of also expecting that the level of, in this case, soccer that you were playing and wanting to play was also part of that. You know, that there is a discipline, there is a, a, a commitment that being on a team of that level and wanting to achieve that level is really a, is also a statement of character. Another experience that I had was, um, you know, when I was deployed and, and I was relatively young, uh, I got, I was pretty successful. I mean, you know, our, our team, I should say it better. Our team was fairly successful and I represented the team and I got called into the Colonel's office one day and, um, senior leader, and he started chewing me out because my guys had decorated the bathroom walls. I thought, how the heck does he know it's my guys, right? Like they share the bathroom with the civil engineers and the cops, you know, and we're the aircraft maintainers. Like, how do I know it's my guys, right? So I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I was like, now just, you know, sir, may I ask the question? Uh, sir, can you tell me, you know, how we know it's the, aircraft maintainers from, you know, this, you know, the green, the green uh, ramp. And, and he said, Oh yeah. Cause you're all over it. <laughs> so... <laughs> okay. That made yeah. sense to him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all over it. In other words, you know, and, and I kind of looked at him and, you know, in the moment I, sometimes I use humor in, in, in place in opportune times, but, but I said, okay, sir, well, what list did I make? Right. <laughs> How'd you do? <laughs> How'd I do? What, which list did I make? <laughs> that was not the right time to use humor, actually. 
but that it actually created a really uncomfortable situation. And, and, you know, we go back to trust, but here's the, here's the thing I've, you know, I might've used humor in the moment, but that's more because I didn't know how to respond authentically. Yeah. Cause that was a real betrayal. You know, here I got the guys I lead were be, were really successful. We're being really successful. This was after my insight having been deployed and I came back and, you know, just moved the whole unit really from, you know, barely making standards to, you know, far exceeding standards because I, I really got what we were about. I got that if we don't fly, people die. And I just really altered my whole leadership actually that moment that I had spoken about earlier. And uh, it mattered. And, and here I am and when we're successful as a unit and these same guys, now I don't know who they are. There's 200 and, you know, 197 of them are, are use, you know, men using the restroom and, and probably one or two of them wrote on the bathroom wall, but I don't know which ones they are. Now, this is such a personal thing, you know, somebody making sexually explicit jokes about you, right? And you're the leader. Now, what do I do? Do I chew them all out? All of them? Do I show up and, you know, when, when these things come out as a woman, you know, you can be perceived as weaker, you know, just the fact that you are a victim of that kind of thing, you can be perceived as weak. Right. Yeah. So how do I maintain my strength? How do I maintain my confidence? How do I uphold accountability and not just, you know, step over it? How do I deal with my own betrayal? feelings of betrayal. And I was hurt, man. You know, I was hurt about that. Yeah. I mean, how do you not like to your point, how do you not take that personally? Because, you know, you've worked alongside this team, you've led them and you've guided them into a higher standard. And then one or two or three guys, whatever it might be, throw you under the bus and you're paying the price. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, that was also a somewhat defining moment. You know, the way that I, the way that I did that was I, I actually did use a lot of authenticity. Um, and I use, I, I don't actually use anger a lot, but we sure are talking about it on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're losing our shit all the time. Damn it. <laughs> it's actually not my go-to thing. Uh, but, but I did, I used that. And, um, and, you know, I never found out who did it. Um, but the thing that I left with is I acknowledged it. I expressed myself completely, authentically and powerfully. And, and I expressed my disappointment and my, uh, anger. And I also expressed my respect for, you know, the 98 of us who, or 198 of us who, who didn't participate in it. And, you know, I, I didn't know other than that, you know, make everybody go clean, clean it up. But, but I, at least I felt good about having expressed myself, uh, completely. And, you know, one of the things about that I say about our brand today is that we're brave. Mm bravery. That's part of our brand. And it's part of what makes us do really good work is we say the thing that's hard to say, but needs to be said. Now, do you come by bravery? Do you come by, you know, the desire and the attraction to, I guess, uh, I don't know if attraction is the right word, but the being in an environment of 
discipline and structure. How was that for you growing up? Do you come by it from, you know, were, was your, were, were either of your parents in the military? Do you have other family in the military? What was it? Do you come by that honestly? Was there, what was it like for you growing up? How was your, how was your dad? And, and do you have siblings? Tell me a little bit about your background as a, as a kid growing up. Yeah. And I, I want to do that, Patrick. I just, you just reminded me about something I wanted to say about being a woman. Mm-hmm. Could I, could I go back and say that really quick? Please. Yeah. So, you know, when I was in the military, I was, you know, 18 to, I don't know, 28, late twenties, something like that. And, you know, it was, it was a defining time and I was mostly inside of proving myself, you know, and, but there came a time kind of towards the end of that and that I realized the power of, of, of just, you know, being a woman. Right. So, so I, I stopped needing to prove myself and, and, you know, when that went away, there was an authenticity of who I am in the world that showed up, you know? So, you know, you kind of go through this progression, like I'm just as good as the men and I'm better than the men. And, you know, when you set this whole thing aside and you just be you. And I have to say that at this point, I really pull on, you know, you hear people talk about masculine and feminine. I really am, you know, I pull on both. Sure. You know, my big learning was actually to really develop my feminine side. Uh, and, and people, I think they kind of have a misunderstanding of that, but really the, the power of that and, and also my masculine side, like to really bring the two into balance. And I think when you can get to a place of balance as, a, as, a, um, as energies, right? So, you know, however you are. You know, your your uh, your assigned gender, your transcended gender, your chosen gender. You know, different than masculine, feminine energy, and bringing those two things into balance, I think, for oneself gives gives a lot of power. Yes. And and groundedness, that wholeness. Um, so I just I just wanted to say I didn't want to leave you where I left you. Okay. <laughs> We're clear. Yes. I love. Thank you for finishing that though. But that's great. So tell me. Yeah. You know, because you're, you're female, you're, you know, you're military, you're disciplined, you're confident, you're smart. Is that nature or nurture? What, how, how was there some upbringing in there that your dad or mom were a certain way were, you know, how was that for you, Carrie? Oh yeah. I, you know, I, I'm learning there's nature, but I'm a, I really see a lot of nurture. You know, my dad was uh, military. He was he was in the reserves, so it wasn't actually a big part of our life. Um, the best part of him being in the reserves is when he went to do his reserve duty. My mother would spoil us, you know. So we loved it. Um, my mother was a powerhouse. She was one of the first women uh, CPAs in her community. Right. And you know, one of the fir- not just CPAs, but one of the first women business owners, and she was a successful you know, CPA business owner. And she was a, you know, still is really an, a, you know, very well known in, in her fairly large community. She serves on many boards. She's, you know, in magazines, she's just, you know, just a powerhouse really. And so I think some of that, you know, just got in me around that. You can't help it. You can't help it. Yeah. You know, when I was a little girl, I didn't imagine like, oh, I'm going to be a mom and I'm going to have a little baby. None of that. You know, it was like, I'm going to wear a power suit and I'm going to have a suitcase (laughs) and I'm going to be on an airplane. (laughs) 
blow shit up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was like, that was my dreams. You know, I want to be a businesswoman when I grow up. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, my dad, I really did get, you brought up discipline before. And, you know, I really got discipline, I would say from my father. And um, they did a lot of cool things, you know, that I didn't think were so cool at the time. Like, you know, we didn't get to watch TV during the week. And we only got it like a couple, you know, an hour or so on Sunday morning and maybe, you know, or Saturday morning, something like that. And halfway through my upbringing, uh, we didn't collect the eggs. And so, and we were watching TV. So he came in and cut the TV cord and that was it. <laughs> You're <laughs> done. We didn't have TV after that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. But, you know, I had to collect the eggs. I grew up on a farm. Mm. And, you know, every night, and if I didn't collect the eggs, my dad would come in. You know, I thought, I, I thought, you know, my my 11-year-old memory is it was like 2 o'clock in the morning. It was probably 10 o'clock at night. Sure. Maybe, you know, an hour after I've gone to sleep. But but I'm pretty sure it was like midnight, right? <laughs> That's the story. That's the story you're telling yourself. So that's that must be true. That's the way I I think it happened. And he'd wake me up. He'd say, "Go collect the eggs." I'd be like, "Oh, come on! I'll get them in the morning." He's like, "Nope, your job. Go collect the eggs." And I just got you do what you're supposed to do. You just do what you've given your word to do. You do what your job is to do. And um, and you know that was discipline, man. I learned that early and and continuously. And, and that's what you did. You know, you collected the eggs, you're supposed to collect the eggs and feed the chickens and you, you know, feed the rabbits and you feed the ducks and you, you know, I mean, you just like, that's what you do. You know, and I think the, the military too, obviously, you know, reinforce that, but there's, you know, and there's a discipline my mom, my mother had and, you know, going to work and coming home and just work, watching that work ethic. But yeah. Yeah. And my, my sister and I four years apart and, uh, you know, we, um, I don't know. I, I used to, for a long time, we were kind of night and day, you know, uh, I would, and, and really that's, I'm talking about my uh, blood sister. I, I have three sisters and, uh, and I have, and they're all kind of different. So I have my blood sister who I grew up with. She and I grew up together. She's four years younger than me. I have my older, uh, half sister, um, who has been a big part of my life. And, um, and she's Navajo and, uh, she's my stepsister and, and then her sister who really hasn't been much part of my life. Um, but, but still, you know, a sister. And so, you know, I, I had in my awareness growing up, you know, I had these Navajo sisters and I think that just had me see things differently. And, and, you know, my sister Cecilia, she's contributed so much to me and, 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 you know, just my my worldliness and my appreciation of different ways of thinking and going about things and watching her, you know, she's bridged. I'm sorry. I kind of trailed off here, but I just want to talk about her for a second. She's, she's really, she's incredible and she's, she's quite older than I am. You know, she's found a way to bridge worlds. And I think that's another thing that I bring or that I've learned is she, you know, here she is. She's, she's Navajo purely Navajo. She was adopted by a white man. And, um, and could you imagine being Navajo adopted by a white family, but still going back to the Navajo family in the summers, right? Cause my dad would make sure that that happened. And, you know, just what she had to deal with in, in having kind of these two families. Right. And then, 
and, and the stories around that and the interpret assessments around her. And, you know, she has transcended that in the most beautiful way. And she, you know, part of what she does is she bridges the two worlds. You know, she walks in both worlds. You know, it's it's interesting that you bring up the story because as I'm listening to you and and observing and just because of who I am in my own journey of observation of leaders and having many interviews with some really cool, successful people, you know, the, the question, you know, that I always come to or the observation I always make is that you faced a lot of adversity, you know, as, uh, you know, particularly in the military, but you know, through your life, you face some adversity and, and, and then you have a sister. And I mean, think about the adversity that she had. And I just recently did an interview with a, a friend of mine and a, a long-term member of rain, our, com- our, our community and very, very successful, but was raised in a, a refugee camp. And, you know, up in, right up until she was 15 years old. And we, we shared, she shared with me that although she was in a refugee camp, she was born uh, several, there's nine siblings altogether in the family. She was always very happy. She didn't see the, you know, she was with her parents. So in her world, it was cool. I'm, I'm, I get to hang out with my mom and dad and I'm, you know, and, and although they were, of course, in a refugee camp, which was sometimes I didn't get food and sometimes we did. And it was that adversity and where she's come to in all of that is an amazing and high degree of success. It, it actually formed her attitude. And this is a lady whose gratitude, she's, when she talks about being grateful, arranged marriage when she was 15 years old is what brought her to Canada. And when you think about that story and what she faced, yet here's a lady who got through it all, raised her children, went through a divorce, by the way, raised her children on her own. That adversity actually was what, sculpted her and and brought her to where she is now many not everybody is that many would use that as an excuse to not have success or to not achieve anything and so as i'm listening to you share your story about your sister and your own story i think about the challenges the adversity that in your case you and your sister have faced you know the fact that you were in a loving family by the sounds of it i mean your dad was a hard ass, which is fine. That's just because he really wanted to, you know, his daughter. Hard ass, soft heart. (laughs) That's right. Wanted his daughters to be amazing, which they are. Mm -hmm. And we look at where you are today in your business, what you are building your business around really is a reflection of the journey that you've been on, the, the real life education that you came to and your desire to share that with others, to support others in raising the bar, being the best they can be which kind of almost goes back into what you did really on mass with the team that you had in the military. I mean, we talk about 200 men, mostly men that you had to elevate to perform. Those are big moves that you can't look at that and go, you can't marginalize that. You can't minimize that. And so how much do you think, I mean, when you really consider the training you had in the military, but even leading up to that in your life, that your dad and your sister and the journey you were on, do you see that all you went through is what got you here and what makes you amazing at what you do today if you hold it that way? Because I think as listeners sometimes hear it's, it's, it's 
yeah, but she doesn't got what I, you know, she's, they've achieved that success, but she's not going what I'm going through. Like she doesn't have the hardships I have. They, you know, I've, I've, it's different for me. Do you, have you experienced that? And do you see that difference with you? Maybe that's not the right yeah. question. Yeah. Well, at least I get a direction you're pointing. Let me see if I can be, be Please. relevant to that direction. You know, there's a book out there, Crucible, Crucibles or something. It's got, you know, leaders who, who have gone through these crucible events and became leaders. But here's the thing that, you know, it's great. The book's great, but, but here's what I'm not sure. I can't remember if they really get across. It's something you said. It's, it's what they do. It's not the event or the hardship. It's what you do with the event, right? It's, it's your relationship to it. It's your response to it. You know, that that's the thing that, is, is people make themselves up, right? Now, sometimes what they make themselves of, if they get so rigid about it, you know, you have to break that apart anyway. But, you know, uh, it's funny. I, I, I don't really think of myself having faced adversity. And, and yet the way you're, you know, well, yeah, I guess, I guess in some ways I really have, you know, but I, I just don't think about it that way. Um, but you see, and this is yeah. where, as a, you know, in, in the world of leadership, I'm, I'm, and maybe I'm guilty of more, you know, too much reflection, but I, you know, I do believe in, you know, at the end of the day that we set goals or we have an outcome that we want to achieve or something that we want to create. And it's never about the outcome. It really is about who you have to become to achieve that outcome. You know, you, you actually said it for all intent and purpose when you went to school and you're in the military and you're getting the training and, and then you get punched in the face and you're just like, holy shit, this is real. This is like, this is there's real. bombs and people Oops. can die and yeah. I can die. And, and, and Did I mean to sign up for this? <laughs> how, how to, what has yeah. this got to do with, you know, division one soccer? Yeah. So really in, in that moment, it's like, who do you have to become to pull this off? And, you, yeah, and you, that's the defining moment. That is a defining moment. But you even said it, you know, you kind of, you, you, you know, you picked yourself up the, off the floor you could have crumbled. I mean, you could have, you know, curled up in the fetal position and went, fuck, I'm out. I can't take this on. And you didn't do that. You actually had the moment that it, you, you actually hit that line and you said, I got to pick up my game. I got to play this game. I got to play full on. People are counting me. Life's depend on me. Now that, that is a crucible moment. That is that moment yes, in time that, that, was. that defined you. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah. Could you ever be anybody else ever again could you ever be anything but that and that's what i always find so fascinating with and i think to me and and i I don't know if i believe this but it shows up for me i think i do and the fact is is that you are female so that that adds a a degree of difficulty if you will you know it's like you know, double edge. <laughs> right? I also get more attention. Oh, you know? okay. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, that's, that's your perspective as a female. That's a good one to have. So <laughs> that's great. Thank you for sharing that. So as, as, no, no, they always love a female talking about combat experience. That's even, you know, what I yeah, mean is double yeah. edge. Go ahead. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good one yeah. though. It's, it's, it's interesting. I'm always, but anyways, that's how I view it when I, you know, and having had some other conversation with you and watch you work and, and do that. I mean, it's just it's just interesting to see because as listeners are listening to this podcast, it's also about them taking away a, 
a, a, a perspective that they can look at themselves, look at their oh. teams. Yeah. Let me share something with you. So, and, and this, I was, I'm inspired by, I kind of got the idea from the Strozzi Institute and they talk about this thing called sites of shaping. And, and this is something I, I really do work, you know, I see it in myself, your, you know, listeners can really see themselves in it. I work with leaders a lot on this. And, and in a sense, you know, you're asking, well, how did you get to be the way you are? You know, and, and what a lot of people will do is they really will look at these individual life experiences, kind of like we are, you know, and these individual life experiences are the ones that are most prevalent to us. And we go, yeah, after that event, this is who I became in life. Like that's, it became who I am. Right. And then, you know, if you're a bit more perceptive, like you, you, you are, you start to talk about, well, what was your familial upbringing? And, and I'll, you know, we call that a shaping, right? So you were shaped by individuals' experiences. You were shaped by your family and your upbringing, but then there's like five more shapings, but are less visible, you know? So, you know, we're shaped by our communities. You know, like we're shaped by military, right? Institutes are shaped by uh, you know, growing up in more of an agricultural kind of area, you know, that's, has a different shaping that kind, you know, farming community, right. You know, shaping, growing up, uh, downtown in a big, you know, big city. Uh, and then there's shaping of our, you know, religious institutions there or not there. Right. And, 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 and then there's, you know, shaping of our culture, you know, just myself growing up in North America, you know, I have certain ideas of what success is. And I have, you know, it's kind of like this cultural drift, right. Of, of what you're supposed to do in life. And, and, um, you know, and, and we just get shaped at historical forces, right. Just by our own history, you know, we're never really free from the history that shapes us. And, and, um, and if you start to really see all the ways you've been shaped, it's like, wow, I can get why I kind of turned out the way that I did. And what's brilliant about seeing it is, look, when I get that I've been shaped culturally by, you know, you got to get the higher position that, you know, what we talked about early in the episode, you know, more for more sake, which is very North American conversation. I think other places in the world as well. I just live in this place. You know, you can see, whoa, I've been just shaped. That success means more money and more fame and more, you know, just more, more, more. That's what success means. Well, then I can actually have an opportunity to define what is success really for me? You know, what success I can, when I can see that cultural shaping, that cultural drift, I can make a choice outside of that. You brought it up. And so I got it. Oh, man, there's about three things that I, we got to catch up on here. So, okay. <laughs> Every guest I have, I always want to go to, uh, you know, uh, I was, I'm already thinking about, uh, you know, the next podcast that we're going to do part two. Okay. Anyways, we won't go that far yet, but tell me, we talked about brave. You talked about being brave. You know, you talked about braver, you know, uh, Brene Brown, who's one of my favorite authors and heard the study of the work that she does because it's so much based on data and it's, you know, it's, it's very, measurable like she you know this isn't this is research and this isn't just you know esoteric kind of work she talks about bravery a lot and about having tough conversations and i don't know if you've ever had, ever had the opportunity to read the book rising strong one of her it's just an amazing it was really a launching pad for a number of my team that i had read the book after i read it this was a few years ago 
And Brene Brown is is phenomenal in her. She, you remind me a lot of her in terms of the philosophy that or the conversation that I'm hearing from you. And it does take a lot of bravery to have tough conversations. And she talks about how it's kind of messy in the middle, right? You, you end in, you get into those conversations and get clarity and you have the tough conversations and it's not about blaming. It is, and it's, it's just really being authentic, having and being clear and having clarity of what expectations are, what assumptions are, understanding what trust is all about. And when you talk about brave in conversations, how do you support leaders in doing that? Do you say, well, you got to jump off the cliff at some time or, or do you actually give them a context for having those brave conversations? Oh, I, I give them a lot of tools. You know, I, you know, I'm just thinking about yesterday. I, I was with a, a group, a leadership group. I've been with a few times and this, this was one in one of those post m environments and they were building trust. And, um, and what I could see is they weren't having the brave conversation. So, uh, so I trained them in how to give negative assessments to each other. And, you know, by the way, that's, I don't know that we got to that, but that is the core strategy for building trust. It's like, what <laughs> is to give and share, give uh, and receive. That's the important part. Give and receive negative assessments. Why? Because when we harbor them, what happens? Trust breaks down. We get in bad moods. We get resentful, right? So it's like this weird counterintuitive thing. So I train them in how to give each other negative assessments and, and in a way that spurs productive action. Right. Right. In a way that's, you know, in the end, they're crying, they're hugging each other. They're like, can we do this again? Yes. Right. Can we give each other negative assessments again? That's so great. Love <laughs> you that. know, so there's, there's actually some real tools. You know, I don't, I actually don't suggest that people just jump off the cliff because there's, there's a mastery of those kinds of conversations. It breaks down so quickly. If you're not, yeah. if you don't have the tools, because you come at it from a totally, well, I shouldn't say that often people come back at it from a, a position of blame and, and yeah. resentment. And, and we use the phrase, of course, operating on top of something. So, you know, when you're operating on top of something, it, it kind of like that. I always say it's like the pebble in your shoe, right? It's just there. And after a while it gets very painful. And the next thing you know, it blisters and it gets really yeah. messy. Right. So it's yeah. hard to have those constructive conversations when you're operating from some pain. And uh, that's a tough one. So you yeah. get some tools so to do that. Authenticity yeah. is you big. some tools and it's, you know, always speaking authentically, not from a triggered position inside of a greater purpose. You know, why are we doing, why are we having this conversation? It's not to tell you how awful you are and how you're wrong. Right. But we're having this conversation because I care about our relationship and I want to move forward. And, you know, having that out, out in front and established and spoken about and, and authentic, really, you know, th these are basic tools, right? I'm not going to have a tough conversation with you without first creating that kind of purpose for having it and coming from, you know, waiting until I can come from a more centered, grounded, authentic place about how I feel less about how awful you are. The reality of it is, if you want to be a great leader, if you want to take your business to the next level, you have to have the tools, you have to be focused on the training that it takes and yes. the commitment to having the tough conversations sometimes, to being clear and coming from the right place. 
you know, Carrie, I hate to say this, but we're like running out of time. Like, how did that happen? happen? What the heck? Gosh, so many things that we still need to talk about. (laughs) It's not fair. I didn't even tell you about my sister Tara. She's Oh my God! <laughs> so you so you're surrounded by you uh, by amazing people. So you're you're uh, you know you're yes. genetically you know you got a genetic predisposition to be amazing, which you are. And um, I'm teasing, of course. Is no, I was gonna say I don't get that. <laughs> <laughs> if only it was that easy. How do we get wired no. to be that? So as we wind down, I always. I'd like to just have a little bit of fun and a couple of laughs along the way and, uh, you know, some hopefully some rapid fire questions just to throw you off, see how quick you are on your feet today. Oh, goodness. Okay. Okay. They're not hard questions, but sometimes, oh, okay. sometimes. So <laughs> here's an easy one. We'll warm you up. What's, uh, what is the book that you're reading right now that you really, really like and, or a book that you would even gift? Is there a, a go-to for you? Uh, yeah, right now I'm reading The Way We're Working Isn't Working. Who's the author? Tony Schwartz, and he has a co-author, but I don't know the name. Gotcha. Oh, so important. That book is vital, Patrick. It has to do with that regeneration part of performance. Okay, say say again what it is. Yeah, the way we're working cool. isn't working. Awesome. The way we're working isn't working. Yeah. Ooh, I could use that as a catchphrase. I, oh, I yeah. Like and I'm actually giving it, I have nine copies in my house because I'm giving it to all my uh, coaches and consultants. We're having a team meeting next week and they're all going to get it. I could lead into some conversations with that. Uh, yeah. So we in, should have a whole, we should have a whole thing just on that. Oh I really? gosh. We're going to do that. Okay. Okay. What's your favorite swear word? Fuck. <laughs> yeah. That's a popular one. It's not the only one, but it is a popular one. You yeah. know what's actually my favorite one is what? fucking a fucking a. a. Because it's like, you don't want to say ass. <laughs> <laughs> if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get it, get to the gates? Mm. Yeah, just, mm, I love you. Give me a big hug. Nice one. On a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Uh, I'm pretty, I, I, I think I think I'm weirder than I am, but uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm a six or seven. People tell me I'm weird, but not that weird. You're not that weird. I'm not that weird, really. What are you just not very good at? Yeah, uh, I, I actually um, am not good at singing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you and me both. Do it in my car silently. Um, you know, I'm not actually I'll tell you something, I'm not that good at remembering to acknowledge and recognize my team members. I have to train, I have to train myself. Now, the moment they say, Hey, because I've asked them to do this, I'm not being recognized. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have a million things to say about you. Mm. But I'm not good at remembering that. Uh, I think, yeah, I'm guilty of that one too. Isn't that interesting? Yet, given what you do, what I do, isn't it interesting that w- that is one of our downsides? I'm, you know, the strong, yeah. silent type sometimes. And um, as good as I am, like, remind me of it and I'm in. Like, I'm going, oh, yeah. And I can, you know, I'll, I'll be very authentic and pump your tires because I think it is amazing. Sorry I didn't mention it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just, and I have, I have somebody on my team who's so good at, she like, 
She sends gifts. She's so oh, thoughtful. I'm like, God, I wish I could be like you. Yeah. yeah. Room, desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Room, desk, or my car? Uh, my room. Your room. Is your car, what's your car like, Miss Discipline? Well, I, I have a four and a half year old. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> My okay. car's pretty good for a four and a half year old, okay. but I yeah. don't know. We got all sorts of crumbs in the backseat. <laughs> That's funny. Favorite movie? Uh, favorite movie. Um, I grew up without TV, Patrick. Uh, Goonies. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's my four and a half year old watching these days? Yeah, no. Let me tell you. Right now, I'm loving Les Mis. Um, I, I, oh, what's the woman, the, the women, the black women who actually were, were the brains behind the first rocket? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember what it's called either. Yeah. But I watched that movie. It was awesome. Like that's one of my current favorite movies. Yeah. Again, I have a four and a half year old. So we're watching a lot of Sing, uh, Coco, the B movie. Those are great too, though. Those are great too. They're great, but you watch them enough. It's since enough, you know, it's, yeah, it's really enough. That, that, what, that one with the, you know, I love those true ones about those inspirational ones. That's my current favorite one. What's your, do you have a favorite tune? Let's see, my favorite tune. You're failing the top <laughs> 10 questions. I'm telling you right now, Carrie. Let me tell you what I'm not good at. Movies, <laughs> tunes. Uh, actors, actresses, <laughs> names of books. Uh, okay. Uh, we'll finish yeah. up. We'll finish up with an easy I one. Think, yeah. I've been actually listening to chance lately. So it's, it's kind of a tough one for me to, to say in, you know, in, uh, I don't know. Go ahead. <laughs> so we're, we're gonna, man, we digress quickly. What? Okay. This is an easy one for you. What are you grateful? Oh, please. What are you grateful for? Oh my God. I am. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for this opportunity to make a difference for people. If it does, I'm grateful for my husband, my daughter, my family. I'm so grateful for my colleagues. I'm so grateful for my clients. My clients make me cry. Um, I'm grateful for my community. I live in the most beautiful place. I'm grateful. I could actually create a business and, and actually create a platform to do my work in the world, but for other people to do their work in the world, you know, I'm grateful for our leaders. I'm grateful for, um, you know, people who have come before us, like, you know, the, the Gandhis and the MLKs and, and, um, and many modern day leaders. Um, I, I, I have political people I'm really grateful for, but I, I don't, I don't want to, uh, turn people on or off in that way. You know, I'm just grateful for those people who have who have had the bravery to to break through for many of us. I'm grateful for my friend Tien, who's who's we talked a lot about gender today. And um, and my friend Tien is is really showing me actually the limitations of gender and what happens when we transcend that conversation. And you know, he's just challenging me in my brain and my way of thinking, and, and I'm grateful for people who challenge me. Can I keep going? <laughs> if you if you would like to keep going, you Carrie, you can keep going. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, you're uh, you're just grateful for a great life, and I'm grateful uh, for a great life. Yeah, uh, yeah, I really am. I'm grateful for my health. Oh my goodness. Yeah, we yeah. can. Uh, it's sometimes, and why well, this is one of my favorite parts of the podcast actually is because it's the way I end all the shows is around gratitude. 
And mm. I think in the world that we live in, in wanting more, you know, back to, you know, some of your original yeah. conversation, the desire to be more this and have more of that and the world of always wanting more, more, more. Sometimes it just is healthy to stop and slow down and remember what you're grateful for. Carrie, yeah. I am grateful for having the opportunity to meet you and get to know you a little bit. Certainly grateful that you took some time to be on the show today. And uh, I want to say thank you. Yeah. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you for that. I hear that 100% and I love your authenticity and, uh, and, and thanks for having me. I remember the song, Happy. Happy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Farrell Williams. There you go. You got it. Farrell's <laughs> good. <laughs> thanks, Carrie. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.